audio parfait. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. Go to their Instagram or Twitter at the underscore gallery to see just a few of the prints that they have available. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off of their purchase by using the code 15OFF. Go to thegallery.com, that's the G-A-L-R-Y.com, so your wall will never be boring again. Spice. Not latte. Even, it's mo- not even a latte. It's pumpkin spice latte mixed with mocha latte or cappuccino. So I don't know. It's not. It's not really. I don't think it's even a latte. It's coming out of one of those pre-made things from the gas station. It's not. But it still has coffee in it. But it's not technically a latte. It's just a flavored coffee. Okay, so it's a flavored coffee, and then it's a mocha-flavored coffee, and then it's a tiny bit of hot chocolate mixed together with it. It's fucking delicious! I just wish I had some whipped cream on top. Fucking white women and your pumpkin spice bullshit. I'm not (laughs) what... I was loving pumpkin spice way before that basic white bitch shit started. You keep on thinking that. You're not old enough to like something before the basic white I like it because I love pumpkin pie. And you know I do. Yeah. And if I could, I would have pumpkin spice all year round. You can't have pumpkin spice all year round. They sell it at the grocery store. We have we have a few jars. And of the I do spice use stuff. it throughout the year. And I would eat pumpkin pie every single day of the year. You can again you can make yourself pumpkin pie every day. It's not and a I set, have. it's not a set thing. You don't have to wait until you know, September, October, November to to make pumpkin pies. You and can make I them have. literally whenever you want. And I had. I, I was just excited that the gas station had it because it's really early and usually they don't put the pumpkin spice shit out that early. But it I was I was like, hell yeah, fuck yeah. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I'm Kevin. Welcome to Open a Fucking Fuck. Uh, yeah, we didn't have uh, any episodes last week. So the series we were supposed to start last week, we'll start this week. It's a week behind, so it's not that big of a deal, I don't think. Yeah, it's fine to take a break every once in a while. Yeah. I had a migraine, status migraine. Lasted a week, took a day off, came back. And, I mean, it's fine today, I guess. Good. Well, the subject of this series was a black American author that changed the way both blacks and whites saw the tragedy that was slavery. He shined a spotlight on the perils of being an Afri- being of African ancestry in America he presented the country with the unknown story of a man growing up a poor criminal just to become one of the most influential Muslim ministers to leave and then challenge the nation of Islam, working to bring African Americans together and get every man and woman of color the same rights as whites. He was the black sheep of his family. No pun intended. He even considers himself the black sheep of his family. 
He was a cook, a veteran, a self-proclaimed womanizer, a writer, and most of all, a grandma's boy. The books, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, and Roots. The author, the one and only, Alex Haley. Yes. Now, do you know anything about Alex Haley? Aside from the fact that he wrote Roots? No. Okay. Neither did I. And like I said on our weekday Cliff Notes show, I did not realize that there was controversy beyond, behind Alex Haley, other than, you know, the regular controversy you would have as being a black man writing and becoming fam- rich and famous in the 70s. That natural controversy that most that a lot of people would put on that anyway. But the other controversies that come with it, I was not aware of any of that. So if you're saying, oh, well, he picked a controversial one to start with, that was not my intention. I just picked one who I thought was interesting and uh, was a, a, a milestone in African-American and American literature. And then I found out everything else. So by the time I realized that, it was too late. I was already in, so I said, fuck it, we're just going to go with this one anyway. So our main source of information for this series comes from Alex Haley and the book Books That Changed a Nation by Robert J. Norrell. I'm not sure what his connection is with Alex. Usually when you have uh, a biographer writing about somebody, they have some type of connection. I don't know what the connection between the two is. It's, it's kind of a shorter book. I'm sure there are probably some other books out there that are a little bit longer, but this one this one does do a fairly good job of cutting everything down to the need to know stuff and doesn't get you don't get boiled down like you did in the William S. Burroughs one where it's fucking eight hundred some odd pages long and they tell you, you know what he fucking has for breakfast every morning. So it's kinda nice to read a shorter biography book. Okay. Okay. Awesome. So Alexander Murray Palmer Haley was born August eleventh, nineteen twenty one, the firstborn son to Simon and Bertha Haley in Ithaca, New York, just the day after my birthday, many years earlier. So, again, like we always do, let's get to know the family, which will be an ongoing theme with this author. Simon Alexander Haley was born March 8, 1892 in Savannah, Tennessee, to farmer Alexander Alec Haley and his wife, Queen Haley. Both his parents were born as slaves and both apparently fathered by white Irish slave owners. Simon attended Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee at age 15. He then graduated from North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, then enlisted in the Army and rose to the ranks of sergeant in an all-black unit. After he was honorably discharged from the Army after World War I on September 28, 1920, He married Bertha George Palmer, born December 1897, the daughter of William E. and Cynthia Murray Palmer of Henning, Tennessee. Bertha was also a student from Lane College. They had married the previous year at the New Hope Colored Methodist Church of Henning. The nuptials had been grand grand by Henning standards. Will Palmer had bust in the Lane Choir to perform at the wedding of his only child, a sign of the prosperity Will had enjoyed during his 25 years as a proprietor of the W.E. Palmer Lumber Company. I wonder if that's any relation to R.P. Lumber. No, because that's Plumber, not Palmer. 
Oh, Palmer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Never the last mind. name's not Lumber. They're both lumber companies. I'm tired and on a lot of energy right now. <laughs> About six weeks after the birth, Simon and Bertha loaded up and traveled thousand miles from New York to Tennessee to surprise Bertha's parents with their new grandson. It was a surprise because Bertha had kept it a secret, which is odd since she shared a loving relationship with their parents. It probably indicated ambivalence about having a baby in her early 20s. Will and Cynthia were overjoyed to meet their new grandson, aptly named Alexander for Simon's father. Murray, for Tom Murray, who had established his family in Henning in 1874, and Palmer for Bertha's family heritage. The couple had always wanted a son since their own firstborn had died as an infant. They almost immediately began to take care of the child as if he were their son. Will took him to work with, with him at the lumber yard, and Cynthia took over most of the motherly responsibilities from Bertha. Bertha was not a housekeeper or cook like Cynthia. Cynthia considered her daughter overeducated and impractical. Cynthia loved to go help friends pick cotton in the fields after she finished her chores at home just so she could enjoy the sociability. Bertha loved instead listening to and creating music. Her father had even built a music room for her in their huge 12-room house. So as you can see, Bertha isn't the motherly type, and Cynthia pretty much takes over all the responsibility for raising her grandson. Hence, Grandma's boy. Makes sense. And he's the first grandson, which means he gets extra doted on. Because we, oh. we all know how that, that firstborn, when there's no other babies around, and the grandparents finally get a hold of it, holy shit. <laughs> I mean, it's like fucking Jesus came down from the heavens or something. They just dote over him like fucking nothing. And it's not necessarily the, the firstborn either. In some cases, it's the one that is around them most of the time, too. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense with so many people I know, but especially your mother. You are her favorite child. Your firstborn is her favorite grandchild. Yeah. Yeah. She she's absolutely crazy. She's absolutely it. crazy about about my my oldest son. She really is. Uh but again, we lived with them for a long time after he was born and they got very close to him. So yeah, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, Alex's family, well, and, and um, when he's real little, they call him Palmer. Uh, his family was pretty atypical of black families in the South in the early 20th century. Both parents had college degrees. Grandfather Will had been asked by a white man in Henning, or white men in Henning, to take over the lumber company, which he worked, he took over, from a drunken white man who had driven the business into bankruptcy. Will turned the company around into a highly valued company. He was the type of man that when he spoke, everyone stopped and listened. However, the discrimination against blacks in the South at the time and the years before were, as we all know, severe. But as far as Alex knew, blacks were just seen as different from whites. Nothing more. He 
He goes on later to say that he didn't really see the prejudices when he was a child. Um, then he felt like the relationship between whites and blacks at that time weren't near what they would become. Once civil rights movement started, you know, came up and white people started feeling, uh, started feeling, getting scared and feeling pressured to accept them as equals, they started pushing back. But before that, as far as what Alex remembers, he probably from never being a child, left his hometown that often. Well, did no, he? and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. He does do some stuff with his father where they travel and he still sees kindness from white people. So we'll get to that in a minute. But, but at this time, he doesn't really see the prejudices really being shoved onto African Americans from white people. He hasn't seen that yet. In his first years, Bertha and Simon left Palmer in Henning as Simon filled short-term appointments at various black colleges. Palmer grew up more attached to Cynthia than to, Ber than to Bertha. He was what you would call a grandma's boy. He was enrolled in the Palmer Turner Grammar School as one of the youngest and smallest in his class. Uh, it was actually named after Palmer, his, his grandfather. And Turner was the first teacher who ever taught there, so they named the school after them. He started reading at an early age, loving most adventure tales and Bible stories. 1926, when Palmer was five, his grandfather fell ill. Cynthia was unusually irritable with Palmer, mostly because of the stress from her husband being on death's door, so he fled outside and hid beneath some honeysuckle vines by his grandfather's window, staying close in case his grandfather needed him. Under the vines, he found a crippled cricket for which he made a tiny splint. That's kind of sweet. He hoped that both would recover. No word on the cricket, but his grandfather would not. After the doctor declared the death, Palmer ran into town screaming, Grandpa's dead. His passing was the most momentous event in his early life. Bertha and Simon returned to Henning to live. Simon took over the running of the lumber company to prepare for sale, and Bertha, Bertha taught at the grammar school that Palmer attended. Palmer's younger brother, George, had arrived in August of 1925, and his youngest brother, Julius, would come in 1929. It turns out that the lumber company had debts enough to reduce its worth below what they hoped to ensure Cynthia's future. Meanwhile, Cynthia fell into a sort of depression that had her neglecting the housework and cooking. She would sit on the porch with the children, stare out in space. It seemed to Alex that she never smiled anymore. She lost her husband. Well, you had told me about when, um, I believe it was when your grandma died, you had stopped doing housework and stuff like that for a while, too, because you had gotten really depressed over it. Yes, yeah. I did. So it's just, death affects everybody in different ways. Uh, after we buried my daughter... I went home and decorated a Christmas tree and watched the first Resident Evil movie at the same time. Everybody handles things differently. I, yes, they do. <laughs> so Simon landed a position teaching poultry science at Lane College. And suddenly, without warning, 
Cynthia came out of her depression and returned to frantic bouts of housekeeping, cooking, gardening, and vegetable camp. Uh, you can see that sometimes with people who are suffering from bouts of grief or depression. All of a sudden, boom, they're out of it, but now it seems like they're all almost overcompensating for everything they weren't doing before. This sounds like she got bipolar, or back then it would have been manic-depressive. She was having a manic episode. Yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, Cynthia also found comfort in writing letters to family members. She had five sisters and many nieces widely scattered across the South and Midwest. Palmer learned his first concept of communication, that if you write a letter, quote, probably someone would write to you. So... Palmer would, became a, would become a lifelong letter writer. In 1927, Cynthia began inviting the women of her family to the house, including Mathita Merriweather, or Aunt Till from Jackson, Tennessee, Cousin Pie from Chicago, Aunt Maddie Fisher from Carbondale, Illinois, which we know that the uh, virus is running rampant there right now because of the college. Aunt Posey from St. Louis, Cousin Millie Brooks from Louisville, Cousin Georgia Anderson from Kansas City, who brought along her daughter to play with Palmer. But Cynthia was closest to her sister, Elizabeth Murray, or Aunt Liz, who had never married and was a retired school teacher. She decided to move in with Cynthia permanently. In the evenings, the women would gather on the porch to drink and talk about things that Palmer didn't quite understand, Something about a, quote, old massa and a plantation. Quote, early I gathered that white folks had done lots of bad things to our folks, things I couldn't figure out why. The great protagonist of the women's stories was the one remembered as the African. They told how he was kidnapped and brought in change to Naples, where he was bought by by a planter named Waller and taken to a plantation in Virginia. The African tried so often to escape that the slave catcher finally cut off part of his foot. Alex did not understand why people were so mean to the African. The women exclaimed against the cruelty and cousin Georgia sprang from her chair, her small eyes flashing, as she enacted how the African walked with only the rear half of his foot. Alex said the women practically stood his hair on end as they whispered that slave nurses stuck darning needles into the heads of their master's infants. The planter's brother, a doctor, saved the African by buying him. He named the African Toby, and that angered the African, who insisted he should be called Kinte. Eventually, the African, quote, jumped over the broom with a cook named Bell, which means he, they had sex. Yes, obviously. And they had a girl named Kinsey, or Kizzy, I'm sorry, no N, K-I-Z-Z-Y, Kizzy, whom Kinte taught African words. He called the banjo Ko and a river Kambi Bolongo. Kizzy was sold away to a white man who violated her. She handed down the information about the African to her son, George, who was a source of endless fascination to the ladies on the porch for his clever tongue, quick mind, and insatiable appetite for female flesh. 
George was the father of Tom Murray, who migrated to Henning in 1874, and was the father of Cynthia and her sisters. For Alex, the story became, quote, nearly as fixed in my head as in Grandma's. Alex took the family story with him when he went to play with Arthur and George Sims, Fred Montgomery, and various white boys in Henning. Quote, What a happy crew we were, racing down by the tracks of the Illinois Central Railroad, waving and shouting at the passengers. They played baseball and hide-and-seek and shot marbles. When it rained, the boys, 15 or 20 of them, mostly black, but with six or so white boys too, gathered in a barn or a crawl space under a church. When Alex told his family's story, his playmates began to pay him special attention. This was his first time in life to be somebody, and he liked the feeling. He told how the masters and overseers were, quote, all the time beaten on the slaves until sometimes the slaves ran blood or sometimes died of beatings right on the spot. Then Alex told the boys about the time the white master hit the African's, da the African's daughter, Kizzy, and she grabbed him and shouted, You suck your baby milk for my black titties. I'll whip you to death. Eventually, the father of one of the white Henning boys appeared at Cynthia Palmer's door, demanding an explanation for Alex's stories. They were the truth, as her family knew it, Cynthia answered. After that, none of the white boys came around. Good stories, Alex discovered, told of conflict and violence, had heroes and villains, and inspired awe in some and discomfort in others. Just like that whole paragraph. Inspire awe in some and discomfort in others. Yes. Because <laughs> you look quite, quite uncomfortable when I was uh, saying some of that stuff. There's going to be a lot of, uh, especially when we get further like into the second episode, this should only be a two-episode series. Uh, when we get to the second episode, there'll be a lot of African names that I and, that I will try my hardest to pronounce. Uh, I apologize if I get them wrong. Now, about a year after Will's death, Alex began to live most of the time with his parents outside of Henning. Simon, being a natural performer, showed Alex that storytelling wasn't just a feminine art. He loved to tell the boys about his probably over-exaggerated tales of being a war hero and scoring the winning touchdowns in college football games. Like every, you know, father likes to brag about themselves when most of it's probably... Now, I think of Al Bundy. I scored the four touchdowns one game. And on the payments. After the sale of the lumber company, Simon began to take meager jobs at black colleges in the South. Jobs paid poorly since the colleges were mostly dependent on state funds and donations. The family returned to Cynthia's most weekends, but in 1929, they moved more than 500 miles to Oklahoma, colored, agricultural, and normal university in the all-black town of Langston, Oklahoma, where Simon was appointed to a better position in the school's Department of Agriculture. Just in time for the Great Depression, in 1930, where Simon was paid in state-issued coupons. Not far into their time in Langston, nice. Bertha fell seriously ill, and Simon had to hire a woman to help him tend to the children. 1931, Simon got a better position as Dean of Agriculture at Alabama Ag and Mechanical College, the state's Black Land Grant College near Huntsville, Alabama. Conditions at the school were not good when the Haley's arrived. Simon's annual salary, $1,800, or about $26,000 today. 
not great. No. And Simon was told that the financial situation in Alabama, quote, may render it impossible for salaries to be paid promptly since they depended mostly on property taxes whose value had plummeted. Again, because of the Depression. They moved into a small campus bungalow and Simon started renting out a corner to the students for extra money. So they had a whole bungalow. He'd rent out one corner of it to students. And when I say a corner, I mean a corner he would rent out to kids. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do for extra money. I I, mean, I guess. Uh, college students don't need much room. They're going to spend most of their time out anyway. Yeah. Back in the 1930s? Uh, maybe. <laughs> oh. Simon took to driving Alex across the South to try to teach farmers a better way of sharecropping. Alex remembered that they were always treated with respect and kindness, even if no one ever really took the advice to heart. Uh, Simon would have Alex write down the names of the farmers, their wives, all their children, where they lived. That way, when they would finally call and get a hold of them, he'd be able to give them all the information about them, ask how their kids were doing, ask how the wife's doing, and it'd be like they were old friends. And Alex remembered that they, they were always very nice. They were always very respectable, sat down, listened, shook their hands, all that. But he never got a call back. That's really sad. Yeah. Simon even took Alex to meet Dr. George Washington Carver to try to convince him how to follow in Simon's footprints. He made peanut butter. He did. It didn't work. Alex never had any admiration to be a farmer or a sharecropper, but he took from the experience the appreciation for the goodness and intelligence of rural Southern people. Soon after settling in Alabama, Bertha, again, fell seriously ill. She was hospitalized but got no better, and Simon had to bring her home. Palmer remembered hearing the death rattle coming from his mother's room. Bertha died February 1932. Simon was distraught. Palmer later said he suffered relatively little emotional trauma from his mother's death because Bertha had not shown him much affection. At that time, quote, What I lived for was to get back to Grandma. She was the answer to everything. I think that that totally makes sense because... I mean, she wasn't there for a lot of it. They were, they were gone until Will died and then they came back. And still... Even when Cynthia was depressed, she, he was still on the porch with his grandma. I I barely, the, the moment I found out my egg daughter died, I, I cried for like a second. You, you, had, you had about a, a, you say it was a second. You had a, a little bit of time just for that evening where you were. I was trying to call my brother. Were, trying you to... were upset because of the, the shock of it out of nowhere it happened. And then after that, you were like, okay, well, you know, now I have to put up with all this bullshit of getting everything taken care of. But after that, you were pretty much fine. Yeah, I didn't give a crap. But for for the first couple hours, you were pretty, I mean, you well, were pretty Well, that's because I was trying to get a hold of my, my brother. I mean, and, you, were, you were upset. And it, it, there's nothing to be ashamed of being upset about your mom I, dying, even though you two had a very catastrophic, you had mother. a very catastrophic relationship. You were still, you know pretty upset and it wasn't a couple hours it was maybe 30 minutes i was there it was a couple hours you were pretty upset but after that that next day 
you were just more worried about getting all the shit taken care of that you had to get taken care of because you knew we were going to have to take care of shit. Well, yeah, because it all fell on me. Yeah. Now, that that did not mean, however, that Bertha's funeral was easy for Palmer, even though he wasn't completely emotionally destroyed when his mom died. Uh, the worst part... Not the worst part. The worst part... <laughs> The worst part for Palmer was seeing his father crying uncontrollably. Bertha's casket was put in her music room at her parents' house to wait for the arrival of distant family members, several of whom emitted piercing screams through the night of her wake that traumatized the little Haley boys. Bertha's funeral was held at the Baptist church because the New Hope Church was too small to accommodate the crowd of mourners. When Simon and the boys returned to Alabama, his mother... Queen came to help attend to the boys. Various women began to pay attention to the handsome and pleasant young widower. He surely needed the help. The woman Simon chose was fellow Alabama A&M faculty member, an English teacher, Ziona Hatcher, a small, highly disciplined woman with a master's degree from Ohio State University. Ziona married Simon within a year of Bertha's death. The Palmer family, including Cynthia, was upset about his marrying before Bertha, quote, got cold in the grave. About two years later, they welcomed their daughter, Doris Ann. Julius was only two when Bertha died, so Ziona was the only mother he ever knew. George was well-behaved and studious and conformed to Ziona's expectations of good conduct. He called her mother, but he later could never remember her ever hugging him. Alex didn't have any name for Ziona and was usually at odds with her. He was an indifferent student, which Ziona knew because she was his high school English teacher and had caught him cheating. She was strict and had high expectations for maintaining a good appearance, of which uh, Alex didn't give a shit. Sounds like my expectations... For my children versus how your children dress. Yeah. And, and, and me. I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. If we're going out in public, I expect you to look yeah, I mean, nice if, if and we're, If we're kept. going out in public, I don't want you to look like you just crawled out of a fucking dumpster fire. But I don't give a shit if you are if you look like, you know, we just spent $1,000 getting you made up or anything like that. Well, no, but like for picture day, you're going to dress up for picture well, day. Well, picture day, I want you to look decent because it's a picture. And your kids never do. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. No. The... <laughs> they, they've looked fine plenty of times. In school, Palmer was less a student and more daydreaming. I had the same problem. He loved classes that let him write, even though the only th only writing he ever really did was simple narratives. He loved cruising the Alabama A&M library and drifting into an imaginary world where he was, quote, given to creating fantasies of all kinds that I would never tell anybody. He was small and shy around girls. Quote, instead of being the one who was kissing the girls, I was the one who took the love notes from the girls I wish I could kiss to somebody else. Aww. <laughs> was that you in school, too? Uh, No. I would never take a love note to somebody else. I just was ignored and ignored. Oh. Yeah. In 1937, Alex graduated from high school in Alabama and went with his father to Alcorn A&M in the Mississippi Delta. Ziona had gone with the other children to Elizabeth City College in North Carolina, 
Simon followed her there, and Alex stayed at Alcorn for his freshman year. He liked being on his own, being free of supervision. Still have the supervision that you'd get at school from, you know, teachers and everything. But not the supervision from your parents, especially the stepmother who you don't really like. So that's good freedom to have. In 1938, he joined his family at ECC, where he, again, did poorly as a student. He wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life, but he knew he didn't want to be an academic or a professor like his father wanted him to be. Writing and journalism never occurred to him because there weren't really any black authors or journalists to look to as role models at that time. When Alex was 18, he was falling short of his father's expectations. The two agreed that sometime in the military would do him good. Alex liked the uniforms of the Coast Guard, and in 1939, he enlisted for a three-year run, beginning an entirely new phase of his life as a cook. So if you're going to choose the branch of the military to go into, one thing you want to do is make sure that you like the uniforms. Yeah, that, that should be your top priority. Make sure you look good in the uniform. <laughs> Make sure it's the right color for you. You know, match match your your skin tone and your whether you're a summer or a winter. Match your bag, match your bag to your shoes, all that stuff. Belt to the shoes, not the bag. Belt and shoes have to match. I've always heard that the purse has to match the heels. I've never heard that. It's you have the belt and the shoes have to match. Brown and brown, black and black. Mm. His first ship was the Cutter Mendota, a patrol boat out of Norfolk, Virginia, which took him to Bermuda, where he got, quote, sicker than hell. Did he go to Bahama after that? Or Key Largo? Come on, Montego? He, 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 was, <clears throat> he was what was known as a mess boy. Quote, a mess boy was the lowliest of the creatures. We were domestics. Alex liked the military. Palmer liked the military. He was on his own, and it did a great deal for his self-image. One of the greatest excitements of his time there was rescuing German soldiers whose cargo ship had broken up near Cape Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. For all you people out of North Carolina, if I am uh, pronouncing that wrong, I apologize. They recovered the bodies of several dead seamen as well. Now, there were still people that told him what to do. It was the military, after all. But it was different than at home or school. He loved waking to the sea and standing at the rail to look out at the ocean. One of the reasons he loved the military so much is that it was always changing. It was never stagnant. And, uh, again, yeah, you, you had people above you telling you what to do. But it's not, it's not school. And it's not home. Right, and he was just a cook. Yeah, he, was, he was a mess boy who would be you know, who would who would gradually learn how to cook, which is kind of a uh, misdirection because that doesn't last real long either, as you'll come to find out here in a little bit. In Norfolk, where there were spoilers, where there were thousands of sailors, Haley joined the shore liberty forays of older mess boys and stewards. Prostitutes captured his attention in the black area of Norfolk, known as Trick Street. Women were, quote, the number one objective of every red-blooded sailor that I ever knew. Haley had his first sexual encounter when he, when he and a buddy got drunk, and the friend took him to a prostitute called Chow Chow, telling her, quote, my friend here wants a piece of ass. 
Haley followed her upstairs as Ella Fitzgerald sang a tisket a tasket on the jukebox. See, it would have been more clever if he said, my friend wants a piece of chow-chow. Well, he, he, I don't know. Well, okay. But he just wanted a piece of half. But and sailors, I mean, that's kind of kind of a stereotype. Surely, the, yes. I, the, I, the sailors I, and the prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of go together. One follow seaman remembered that Haley was different from the other mess boys, more educated and able to converse with the white officers. What? Say seaman again. One follow seaman? Yeah, you were you, you kept saying seaman. But I've only said seaman twice. So keep saying seaman. Well they're pronounced it's pronounced seaman. But you're saying seamen. Sea man. One follow sea man. Fellow sea man. And then when there's more of them, they're sea men. Sea men. Yes, but you were saying seamen. But that's what they are. They're seamen. They're seamen, but you're making it sound as if it's seamen, as in one word. It is one word. No, sea man. No, sea men, as in men who, from the sea, Navy, Coast Guard, they're pirates, whatever. They're seamen. It's one word. S-E-A-M-E-N. Semen. I think it's supposed to be two words. No, it's not. Semen. Okay. 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 I... Okay, semen. Now, again, he was able to converse with the white officers. That ability was both a blessing and a burden for him. Lieutenant Junior Grade Murray Day from South Carolina noted Haley's intelligence and college training and ordered him to do the work for Day's college correspondence courses. Day was pleased when Haley won him high grades, but when he got a C in a meteorology course, Day became enraged at Haley and cursed him. Haley responded that Day was a, quote, stupid son of a bitch. At that, at the point of blows, they both pulled back. Haley left the confrontation expecting to get court-martialed, but when the two were summoned to meet with the captain, Day said to forget it. He did not want the story to get out that a black sailor was doing his work for him. I mean, at that time, that was pretty. I yeah, yeah I know. You got but, your I mean, help from the black guy. That's that was that was pretty. I I just wasn't gonna say that. I was just. I used to do work for my brother, when he was like on his. He had to retake sixth grade a couple times. Yeah. I mean, like he, he was in there for three years. <laughs> It it wasn't necessarily all his fault. Let's just say that. Um, but in his his third year, he still wasn't doing his work. He'd come home from school and he'd just leave and go hang out with his friends. So I was like, screw it. I was a freshman in high school, sophomore, something like that. So I I just started doing his work for him. I was already, you know, a huge nerd. So why not? It's like, here, your homework's done. Just turn it in. I I don't know what else to do for you. I wouldn't have done it for him. But. Now, uh, Haley had developed a pen pal relationship with a young white woman. He made the mistake of showing her picture to his mates. News of his white female friend got around the base, and he was transferred out of Norfolk to Beaufort, North Carolina, and assi- assigned to the USCG Palamico an old cutter that patrolled the North Carolina coastline. In Beaufort, he advanced from mess boy 
to mess, the te- mess attendant first class, got an increase in pay, and cooked for a small group in the officer's mess. Isaiah Pop Robinson, a veteran Coast Guard cook, taught him to stew meat and crumble egg yolks and parsley into the mix for appearance sake. Officers thought they were gourmets. Pop advised they ate with their eyes, whereas enlisted sold sailors ate with their bellies. Haley was helping Pop clean up the galley after lunch on his first Sunday in December 1941 when a sailor rushed in and blurted, quote, The radio says the Japs just bombed the hell out of us, somewhere called Pearl Harbor. On the other side of the United States. Mm -hmm. Just as the war broke out, Haley was driving around Beaufort and spotted a beautiful, light-complected young girl on the street. Quote, she had a doe look about her when she she was young and lovely and shy. He did not introduce himself then, but afterwards he searched for her and finally found Nanny Branch at a dance. He pursued Nan vigorously, meeting her at a joint called the Quick Lunch, where one could get a bologna sandwich and a Pepsi for a nickel each and then play the jukebox for the same price. As the necessities of war pressed on the couple, quote, We were in such a state of love that the very idea of leaving her appalled me, and it was mutual. They were dancing to Stardust one night in early 1942 when Haley asked Nan to marry him. Sure, she answered. It was Haley, it was, Haley recalled, quote, a kind of marrying time for military people. But before they married, he took her to Henning to meet his family. By 1942, Simon had moved to Arkansas A&M in Pine Bluff, but Ziona had left him there to teach at Lemoyne, college in memphis and after that they lived apart huh when she met nan ziona took the opportunity to warn her that marrying alex would be the worst mistake she ever made nonetheless the two got married in north carolina with haley using his last four dollars to pay the minister they lived together long enough for nan to become pregnant with their first child lydia born 1943 Alex Haley had gotten married at age 20 without much sense of marital responsibility, without much experience when it came to women, and probably without a good example of a successful marriage to guide his behavior. He could not remember much about his grandparents' loving marriage. His parents' union had seen difficult circumstances with Bertha's bad health and Simon's frequent moves. Simon's marital relations with Ziona were marked by acrimony. She freely expressed her distaste for Simon to Nan. 1943, he was assigned to a supply ship, the Merzeum in California, which carried shells and ammunition to the South Pacific. Crew of 250 was white, except for eight blacks and eight Filipinos in the mess. They left San Francisco in July 1943 and arrived a month later off the eastern coast of Australia. He was aboard the ship for 18 months. Haley's big problem during the long nights at sea was not fear, but loneliness and boredom. He had made the fateful decision to take a portable typewriter on his Pacific service, and he got into nightly habit of writing letters to family, schoolmates, and even to teachers. Quote, it wasn't uncommon at every mail call for me to receive maybe 30 or 40 letters. Shipmates took notice, Haley's boss on the museum, was Steward First Class Percival L. Scott, a black 25-year veteran of the Coast Guard 
a man whose height and breadth dwarfed Alex, Alex's. Their relationship was tense at first. Alex said that Scott was, quote, a hostile old sea dog from the day I entered his galley. At first, his nighttime typing in the pantry annoyed Scott, but after a time, it emerged that Scott had thought of how he might deploy Haley's skills. Quote, Look here, boy. You ever see the captain talk letters to his yeoman? The yeoman took shorthand, but Scott thought that it was unnecessary. He thought that as fast as Alex could type, that he could become a yeoman and was willing to dictate some letters to him for practice. Haley's initial response was dismissive since, quote, the idea of this ungrammatical clown hijacking my off time to dictate to me was hilarious. Makes it, I, with so many people that I went to school with and like we were in the same advanced English classes and shit and seeing how they can't spell or use basic grammar drives me fucking nuts. Well, you need to be uh, nicer to the people at authority who are over you. Scott replied, quote, You're real wise, ain't you? The next day, Scott ran Haley ragged with orders to shine steam kettles and scrub garbage cans. Haley realized that he could resist Scott, fur- resist Scott further and per- perhaps end up in the brig, or he could type Scott's letters. Yeah. So guess what he did? He typed Scott's letters. That night, Scott followed Haley into the pantry. Scott's first letter was to an old colleague on another ship. Quote, I typed one garbled, ungrammatical cliche after another, and then Scott signed it as though it was the Emancipation Proclamation. The next morning, Scott assembled five mess boys, telling them that if Haley gave them an order, it was just the same as Scott giving them an order. From then on, Haley was free of drudgery in the mess, and every night he typed letters. Eventually, Scott arranged for Haley to spend time on the bridge of the ship, where he learned to read flags and blinker lights, thus gathering war news that he reported to Scott. Then, Scott would predict the next big happening in the war. Scott had appointed himself officer in charge of sailors' morale, His gruff demeanor disguised a tender concern about the happiness of all the men, black and white, on the museum. He got angry when young Seaman, is that better? Seamen. He got got angry when a young Seaman received a Dear John letter from a girl back home. One night he brought brought an upset sailor to Haley and demanded that Haley read the breakup letter. Quote, I'm going to set her straight, Scott told Haley, and he began dictating a letter to the to the miscreant girl. Quote, here I sat on a ship full of 500-pound bombs in an ocean full of subs and sharks. You don't even wait to see if I get back. I bet you grabbing some disanimated 4F. It ought to be him out here doing your fighting and dying. A mortified Haley typed it all. And would not be the last time, it would not be the last time Scott's tongue and Haley's typewriter lashed an unfaithful woman. At the, at, at the next port of call, recipients of breakup letters began to get missives of repentance and pleas for forgiveness. Damn straight! That's fucking awesome! <laughs> With Scott's sponsorship, Haley began writing and publishing the ship's newspaper, The Seafarer. 
In a memeograph sheet of news, human interest stories, and jokes, Scott watched the museum's irregular mail calls carefully. He knew when a sailor had lost a girlfriend or was being neglected by his family. He pointed out two crewmen to Haley. Quote, poor guys don't never get no mail. Scott ordered Haley to get the neglected sailors listed in pen pal ads. These crewmen suddenly began to get letters. In the seafarer, Haley wrote a poignant article titled Mail Call, which he intended not just for the crew, but also for the folks at home. So the people at home could write to the sailors, and the sailors could write back. So you're just a lonely person wanting to write to somebody? Now you're both getting something out of it. Awesome. In the meantime, Haley was secretly attempting to write magazine articles, mostly romance stories for a women's confession magazine. He wrote from the perspective of a woman treated badly by a man. The stories were rejected, but Scott discovered them and put them to use in a new morale-building mission. He began dictating love letters to women who crewmen had met in Australia, cribbing passages from Haley's stories. Soon, crewmen began to receive adoring letters. Haley later wrote that after a shore leave in Brisbane, quote, Scotty's clients wobbled back describing fabulous romantic triumphs. Three cheers for old Sea Dog ran out regularly. Scotty was fit to split with bliss. Oh. Are you okay? Did you hear that? Yeah. That was my fucking ankle. Crewman asked Haley to help them with their letters to women at home. Soon there was a line of waiting men each night. For a dollar, he interviewed a sailor got information about the girl's eyes and hair, and banged out a letter. All the sailors had to do was copy the letter in his own hand and post it. Soon, Haley no longer cooked at all. He wrote love letters and edited the seafarer. He did not use the, the war experience as a subject of his writing later in life, but military service is still what made him a writer. That's freaking awesome. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for TheBeardStruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over The Beard Struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! Because they called him the... His nickname was the cook that writes, but he never cooked. He cooked for a very short, very short amount of time before he just became the 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 ship's 
local journalist. Well, yeah, much. but I mean, still, he was a he was but a. But his job was to cook. Yes, he never did it. So it was just a cl- clever quip. Yeah. In 1945, with the war winding down, Alex decided to re-enlist. He figured it was better than returning to college. He was posted in Brooklyn. There, he produced Coast Guard publications and uh, handled public relations. In the late 40s, he was transferred to the district headquarters in Manhattan, where he served as steward to Admiral Edward H. Smith. One day when Haley was serving him coffee, the Admiral said, quote, Haley, I just read an interesting article by a colored fellow. Haley looked at the article and replied, quote, Yes, sir. I wrote it. Smith then arranged for the creation of a new Coast Guard rating for journalists. In late 1949, at age 28, now sporting a thin mustache that made him look a bit older, Haley was made the chief was made a chief petty officer with the title Chief Journalist of the Coast Guard. Pretty much something that he created. Or that was created specifically was created for, for him. him. But without him, probably never would have happened. If I would have known about that back when I was 18 and very, very close to going into the Air Force after I had tested and everything for it, if I, if I would have known about the Coast Guard having, you know, journalism... I would imagine the Air Force has something along those lines. No, now. they didn't, because no? I asked, because I, I said I wanted to be a writer, but when I I asked about it, they said they didn't really have anything. I mean, they might now. You would have been putting something in linguistics. linguistics that's what I, I tested really high in linguistics and mathematics, and that's what they were going to put me in. So by then, Alex and Nan lived at 419 West 129th Street in Harlem, in a nice apartment that Haley got by paying money under the table to a realtor. The couple's son, William, known in the family as Fella, was born in 1945, joining Lydia, now age two. The family arrived in Harlem, the aftermath of the 1943 riot. Whites saw Harlem as a kind of no man's land, and many blacks felt like they would have been better off if the Japanese had won the war. Probably. Maybe. Now finally reunited with Alex, Nan expected his attention to focus on her and little Lydia and Fella. But she soon felt that he neglected them, and she found his response to her feelings unsatisfactory. Alex usually avoided conflicts with Nan. He usually avoided conflict with damn near everybody. It's another thing you're going to find out about him. One of the things I don't really like so much because he comes up with squirrely ways to get out of shit, but he will lie his way to get out of anything if he thinks there's going to be an argument. Yeah, that, but I am headstrong. Anytime there's a conflict, I'm ready to deal with it, get it dealt with, hash that shit out, be done with it, okay. and stop. Just squash the beef and go. Okay, well, Alex usually avoided conflict with Nan, but during an argument in 1947, she slammed the bathroom door in front of him and he reached in and pulled her out roughly. His feelings for Nan were secondary to his professional ambitions. He came back from the war intent on being a writer. Quote, every night that the Lord brought, I was writing. So it it, it points at maybe a little bit of a... 
I guess you could say it's domestic abuse, but he just kind of grabbed her and pulled her out of the bathroom. But he didn't, he didn't like beat on her or anything like that. But still, rough handling is still abuse. Yeah. Simon still wanted Alex to go back to college, even though he was 30s now. Uh, something he had no intention of doing. Simon was disgusted. His siblings all graduated with degrees. So he was to be seen as the black sheep and failure of the family. It's possible that Simon's disapproval separated Alex from his southern roots. In 1949, Alex's beloved grandma, Cynthia, died. Aunt Liz, not far behind. Now, as he wrote for the Coast Guard publication, he also spent the decade between 1944 and 1954 trying to break into writing for the national magazines. He had submitted stories to the pulp magazines, which we had heard plenty of in the Robert E. Howard series. Yes. In his early days in the Coast Guard, with little success, at one point he papered a wall with rejection notices, reflecting years of trying. His brightest moment was when he received a postcard from an editor that simply read, Nice try. <laughs> that note was the only encouragement he had received. He said, quote, But it was all I needed. In 1946, he sold his first story, quote, called They Drive You Crazy, set in the Coast Guard, for $100 to a Sunday newspaper supplement. This week, the editors rewrote the story, but Haley got the byline. Robert Monroe, his Coast Guard commanding officer, had been a sports writer in Florida. Haley showed Monroe some of his freelance writing, which Monroe began to edit. Quote, I would give him a page and it would come back with chicken scratches and green ink. Monroe was the first person to give Haley a sense that writing was, quote, more than slathering a lot of words over a piece of paper. While he was telling people in the Coast Guard that Haley had real promise, he would say to Alex, quote, in five years, you might learn to write a good sentence. So basically, his, I guess his grammar wasn't that great and his Spelling wasn't that great. You're going to come to find out he's much more a um, an oral teller of stories than a writer of novels. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. When Haley shared his many rejection slips, Monroe asked, What the hell did you expect? But Haley knew that the gruff exterior covered a kind heart. The two became good friends. 1952, Haley started writing several one-page historical vignettes about celebrities for Coronet Magazine at paid, that paid $100 per story. Reader's Digest would then reprint the article, so by 1954, Haley felt that he was making some headway. Now he wanted to explore more serious social issues. Alex had lived his boyhood immersed in his own family history. He had acquired and heading a rich and original story, Back in 1951, he began to imagine a story he entitled The Lord and Little David, which set near Pittsburgh, Mississippi during the summer of 1926 in a community that was about half white, half black. Plot centered on the relationship between two 12-year-olds, David, white, George, black. Haley wrote that there were no thought of any race problems in a community that ran quite smoothly, all sharing the bond of being poor and living for cotton, both facts accepted as the seasons. In 1952, he submitted The Lord and Little David to the Saturday Evening Post. Post editors thought Haley's dialogue was good, 
but they were not sure whether the characters were white or black, nor could they quite follow the plot, which centered on a white church excursion. A while later, Haley sent the manuscript to a literary consultant, Maurice Rutledge, who confirmed the post-critique, quote, It runs off in too many directions and is what I would call too busy and confusing for the reader because although you have a sensitive feel of your characters, the story itself seems to get lost. Haley worked hard on his craft. He took 21 pages of notes from Maureen Elwood's widely used instructional guide, Characters Make Your Story, and he now embraced autobiographical subjects for his main writing efforts, never letting them go, which will be the crux of all of his writing from now on, will be autobiographical. Pull everything from what he knows. Awesome. Race relations were changing significantly in the 50s. So in 1954, with the Brown versus Board of Education and the rise of the Civil Rights Movement, Haley started to write articles that challenged the negative images whites had about African Americans. Appearing first in the Christian Science Monitor and then in Reader's Digest was his article entitled The Harlem Nobody Knows. Haley cast Harlem as a place that defied its reputation as a sinkhole of capitalism. To counter the image of black degradation in Harlem, Haley emphasized that the area was filled with businesses run by blacks who had overcame the problems caused by the Great Depression and the 1943 riot. In 1955, Haley published a piece in the Atlantic Monthly recalling his Aunt Liz. The story is a slice of life with a building plot. The expectation in heading that the proud and independent Elizabeth Murray had a lot of money and would contribute it to some community causes. Haley displayed a talent for description, as in the case of a service at the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church. Quote, Both the senior and the junior choirs sang with inspiration. Then the preacher gave the devil such a beating round the stump that Brother Dandridge's wooden leg was going fortissimo in General Bedlam. Sister Scrapscott shrieked three times in high C and fainted right in the choir stand. And Brother Rich Harrell leapt over the rostrum railing to kiss the preacher's hand. Haley wrote in African-American dialect, even though its use was then being condemned for pandering to white racism. He thus took an idiom used to mock black people and made it one that celebrated them. Haley believed it brought authenticity to his writing. Haley's publishing success undermined the popularity of the man known in the Coast Guard as the cook who writes. Some officers insisted that no man could to serve two masters, and Haley sought a transfer. He was dispatched to the Coast Guard headquarters in San Francisco. Though it meant leaving the center of American publishing, Haley was relieved to get away from New York. Quote, you can't be around people who are perceiving you negatively for too long. That makes obvious sense. <laughs> Haley was excited about the journey across the country at the time when such trips were glamorized the, as the modern American family's ideal excursion. But his years in New York had insulated him from the indignities of race segregation that still existed. The Haley's drive to San Francisco was a journey through the humiliations that remained for African Americans in the mid-50s. They faced constant denial of rooms of rooms at motels that displayed vacancy signs. Haley began wearing his Coast Guard uniform to try and get better treatment, 
And at times, the family simply slept in their car on the side of the road. Sounds a lot like the stuff we've been seeing on Lovecraft Country. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's set in the same time, pretty yes, much. Yes, so. it is. Haley assumed his duties as press officer for the Coast Guard in San Francisco. October 1956, a Pan Am flight attempting to circumnavigate the globe, ditching in the Pacific, its passengers and crew rescued by the Coast Guard. By the time the survivors were brought to San Francisco, the crash and rescue had become the subject of intense media attention, which Haley managed masterfully, dealing with Life magazine and the Art Linkletter television show. Early in Haley's time there, a group of Coast Guard public relations men went to Enrico Banaducci's famous outdoor cafe, The Hungry Eye, in North Beach, and one of Haley's colleagues recognized Barnaby Conrad, author of Matador and owner of the El Matador nightclub, which was a place to be seen in San Francisco. John Steinbeck, Truman Capote, William Soroyan, and Bud... Bud Schulberg came through. Conrad made a special effort to have Haley spend time with Schulberg, who became Alex's lifelong friend. Conrad taught writing, knew the writing market, and edited Alex's work. He, let her, he later said Haley was a good storyteller, worked hard at writing every day, and read everything about writing and never gave up. Haley spent hours chatting with the other writers. Quote, it was the first time I had been in a community of selling writers. But home life was a different matter. Nan remembered that Alex would come home from work, have dinner, leave again, saying he was going back to his Coast Guard office to work on his writing. He was not always working. His San Francisco friends, like Barnaby Conrad, knew that Haley saw other women ah, and yeah. that he was a self-confessed womanizer. One evening, Nan began hemorrhaging called Haley's office and was given a different telephone number to call. The woman who answered called Alex to the phone, but Nan hung up. 1958, Nan, Lydia, and Fella, the children were now teenagers, went back to her home, home in North Carolina for a visit, and once there, Nan decided to stay. The marriage was almost over. The San Francisco experience gave Haley confidence that he belonged in a community of writers, but he did not publish much in those years. That his writing had stalled may have fueled his desire to return to New York when he retired from the Coast Guard after 20 years service. In 1959, at age 38, he was going to create, create his own fame as a writer. Nan Haley often told her husband, quote, You're married to your typewriter. In June 1959, she gave him an ultimatum. It was either her or the typewriter. They both moved back to New York in the summer of 1959, but separated for good. Nan settled in Harlem, and Alex moved to a one-room basement studio apartment on Grove Street in Greenwich Village. Maintaining two residencies and living on a relatively meager military pension meant that Nan and Alex faced hard financial times. He had not wanted her to work when the children were small, but, quote, When Alex left me, I knew I had to work. I had to take care of and provide for my children because I knew I could never depend on him. Sounds like women can't depend on any man. But, hey. <laughs> that took you too long to get. 
By then, she was angry at his financial irresponsibility. Quote, it was always when my ship comes in and when things get better, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do that for you. But he never did. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Years later, Nan demoaned Alex's failings as a husband. Quote, I don't think he ever let me get close to him. Only to cook, wash, have sex, that's about it. He always was secretive. Haley never spoke critical of Nan and claimed that they just sort of drifted apart. Haley maintained contact with his children but made little time for them. His son Fella lived with him for a while in the village after the teenager was accused of having sex with a minor girl in Harlem in 1962. The disposition of the charge is not clear. Fella entered the Army in the mid-1960s and served with the 101st Airborne Division as a paratrooper in Vietnam. So he he turned into his father, and they didn't drift apart. He drifted apart. She was yeah, always Alex, there. Yeah, Alex pretty much drifted. Yeah. Money problems plagued Alex as he left the Coast Guard. He didn't handle his finances very well. He tried to make money as a freelance writer, but the jobs in New York were few and far in between. At this point, there were only at, at this point there was only a head of cabbage and two sardine two cans of sardines in his cupboard. He figured, quote, nowhere to go but up. Which I guess is a good way to look at it. Well, yeah, when you hit rock bottom. Which the, you can still go down. The cabbage could go bad and, the, and somebody could steal your sardine. It can get worse. It can always get worse. Don't ever think it can't get worse because it can. I live my life by that fact. It can always get worse. It was during this time that he met and befriended not just a black literary icon, but an American literary icon, James Baldwin, who considered Haley a peer and, quote, did more for me than he'll ever know. He also ca caught up with an old friend from Heading, George Sims. He had arranged for Haley to live in the basement apartment of his building. Sims had an avid curiosity about black history that he had satisfied by spending nights and weekends at the New York Public Library. He reputedly had a photographic memory in the early 1960s. Sim and Haley spent many late evenings wandering about Greenwich Village. They chatted about Henning, the people they knew there, and the meaning of the lives they had observed. The time spent with Sims in Greenwich Village nurtured Alex's autobiographical instincts. The two men were close companions for the next 30 years, and Sims became Haley's research assistant. Haley continued to pursue magazine assignments. He did a profile on comedian Phyllis Diller, whom he knew from his time in San Francisco. <laughs> Haley's rise as a freelance writer was linked in part to the growing no notoriety of the Nation of Islam, or the NOI. He had first heard of the nation when a black musician he knew in San Francisco went home to Detroit, was converted to the sect, and returned, saying, quote, the white man is the devil. Hard to argue. Yeah. The group gained more notoriety when Mike Wallace did a piece on them called The Hate That Hate Produced. It introduced the country to the leader of the nation named Elijah Muhammad, also known as the Messenger. It also introduced a handsome, red-headed, copper-skinned man whose speeches riveted listeners, whether they agreed with him or not. A one, Malcolm X. Now things get spicy. Ooh. Malcolm had moved to Harlem in 1954 and transformed NOI 
Mosque Number 7 into an exciting place with a growing membership. Harlem residents seemed irresistibly drawn to him. His duties soon include expanding the nation along the East Coast, which he did with astounding success. He later claimed that the national membership of the nation was only about 400 when he began preaching, but numbered in the tens of thousands by 1959. Malcolm and the nation's message was of strict personal conduct appealed to a growing number of residents of dangerous black ghettos. Haley interested Reader's Digest in a piece on the nation, and he wrote Malcolm several letters that went unanswered. Finally, he went to the Muslim residents in Harlem that served as Malcolm's office. Haley showed Malcolm a letter from Reader's Digest requiring a story on the nation. Quote, You're a tool. You're a white man's tool. Malcolm responded, but he kept talking to Haley. Haley responded that he intended to write an objective piece to which Malcolm replied that a white man's promise was worthless, but that he would consider cooperating. Later, Malcolm said that Haley would need the permission of Elijah Muhammad. Haley went to Chicago, had dinner with the messenger. Nothing was said about the article, but when Haley returned to New York, Malcolm agreed to help. Haley began attending mosques number seven in Harlem, and he traveled to the NOI temples in several other cities. His easygoing demeanor and enthusiasm for research allayed at least some of the natural suspicions among the NOI men. Mr. Mohammed Speaks appeared in Reader's Digest in March 1960. He made content connections with some other high-profile people like Lena Horn and her husband, which led to other connections, the most valuable of which was probably his connection to Reader's Digest. In 1960 and 1961, Haley developed a number of stories for the Digest, most of them profiles of celebrities, black and white. His most noteworthy articles were adoring pieces on Percival Scott, his boss on the museum. Still fewer than half of the stories he wrote for the Reader's Digest were published. The stories that did appear in print were all profiles of talented African-Americans who had overcome great obstacles and remained humble, unchanged by great success. Haley wrote about two gold medal-winning Olympians from poor black families, the high jumper, John Thomas, and the sprinter, Wilma Rudolph. 1961, Haley connected with a new publication, Show Business Illustrated, ran by Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Enterprise. Hmm. Haley developed a story about Miles Davis, the jazz trumpeter. He was hostile to the media and flaunted a racial edginess, and while he commonly refused to speak to white journalists, he gave the up-and-coming black journalist an interview. However, before the article could be published, the magazine folded. In 1962, Murray Fisher was appointed to develop an interview series for Playboy, he found the Miles Davis piece in the old files of Show Business Illustrated, and he asked Haley to develop it into the very first Playboy interview. Oh. So anybody who ever tells you they only read Playboy for the interviews, you can thank Alex Haley for that lie. <laughs> or you can ask him who was the first person to give. Well, just because you read the interviews doesn't mean you're going to know who the first interview... I'm not like, when I read Playboy, I never read any of the interviews. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I didn't realize there was interviews in there because I, I went searching for a very specific thing. But there are a lot of people who say they only read it for the interviews. 
And I'm so glad we have no Playboys in our home. We do not. I do not read Playboy anymore. The Miles Davis piece established Haley as a gifted interviewer. Haley's affability and his resistance about his own political and social views lent an empathetic tone to his profiles. Quote, I like to study the person, study what they've done, be low-key in my approach with them, project my manner and my sincerity, sincerity, which really has to be sincere, that I was genuinely interested in what they did and how they did it. In January 1963, the Saturday Evening Post published another profile of the NOI titled Black Merchants of Hate, which Haley co-authored with Alfred Balk, a white investigative reporter on the Post staff. During their research, Balk was reporting to the FBI on his and Haley's research and getting info from the Bureau with the promise that he would not attribute it to the FBI. A common tactic used by the FBI for investigating un-American organizations, as they like to say. Mm. Black Merchants of Hate carried a harsher tone about the NOI than Haley's Reader's Digest piece. The Post had a history of racist fiction. The Post piece also shined a brighter light on Malcolm than Muhammad and his inner circle would like. Muhammad already disapproved of Malcolm's meeting with Castro and public criticism of President Kennedy. Haley still had a positive relationship with Malcolm X, despite the Post article, and when Haley asked him to do a Playboy interview, both Malcolm and Muhammad agreed. In the interview, Malcolm said that there had never been a sincere white man ever in history. Whites had brainwashed blacks, but now blacks had seen the truth of the white devil's malevolent influence, and the white man's influence in the world was finished. Christians of all varieties were evil, especially Catholics who produced fascist and communist yes. <laughs> not evil. Who produced fascist and communist dictators? Jews like like to advise the black man, he said, quote, but they never advised him how to solve his problem the way the Jews solve their problems. Elijah Muhammad cleans up morally, mentally, and spiritually from the mess that the white men have left. Blacks should be given their own territory in the United States. Muhammad taught that it was God's intention, quote, to put the black man back at the top of civilization where he was in, where he was in the beginning, before Adam, the white man, was created. This interview changed the course of both men's lives. Also, in 1963, Haley turned to his family experience in The Man Who Wouldn't Quit. Here he told the story of his brother, George's struggles as one of the first blacks to enter the University of Arkansas's law school in early 1950s. George was a model young man, a war veteran, an outstanding college student, the academic star of the Haley family. Simon Haley, now teaching in Arkansas, had persuaded George to be a pioneer of desegregation. George suffered abuse from other students and isolation from law school community, and his first year he wanted to quit. But he endured the hardships finally made a white friend, Miller Williams, and ended his legal education on the school's law review. At the end of his piece, Haley announced proudly that George was a successful lawyer and a rising star in Republican politics in Kansas, and revealed that George was his brother. His story ran in spite of the angry opposition of Miller Williams, who in 1963 was on faculty in the English Department of Louisiana, he had originally been asked to collaborate with Haley on his article, 
But after traveling to Kansas City to interview George, Williams was cut out of the process, he said, without compensation. Alex nonetheless promised that Williams would have a chance to review anything said by or about him before it went into print, but Williams said that he was not given that chance and that George ignored his pleas for help. After threatening Alex Haley and Reader's Digest with lawsuit, he was sent galley proofs for the article, which was due out in days. Miller then informed Alex that one anecdote in the story was fabricated. Quote, I get the impression that your attitude has been, what does it matter so long as I get the information I needed and so long as I get me a good story? He demanded that Haley, quote, get rid of my name and my teaching at LSU. Furthermore, the remarks attributed clearly to me are self-deprecating. They are inane and they are false. But the story ran with William's name, his affiliation with Louisiana State, the allegedly false anecdote, and the quote attributed to Miller asking George to be the godfather of his daughter Lucinda. Alex Haley wrote to the Reader's Digest legal department that Williams was upset that he had been cut out of the byline and that his need for money could explain, quote, his seeming anxiety to fill some potential lucrative suit. Fun fact, in 1998, Bill Clinton would appoint the Republican George Haley to be the ambassador to Gambia. Awesome. Yes, George Haley has a very successful law and political career. He he doesn't make as much money as Alex will end up making, but as far as success goes and being a person people look to for inspiration, yeah. Haley's work benefited from extensive critiques by Reader's Digest editors, especially a senior editor, Charles Ferguson. In 1963, the Digest arranged to pay Haley a monthly stipend of $300 to cover his travel expenses as he scouted for stories. It was an unusual and fortunate arrangement for a freelance writer. The Digest paid him $12,000 in 1963. He wrote 10 articles, of which the editors bought only two for $4,000 each. He began to play stories with other magazines. Quote, I got to the point I'd sell one in every five and then gradually one in every four. Eventually, I became able to sell just about whatever I wrote, particularly after I began to be assigned stories by editors who had acquired a certain amount of confidence that I could execute an assignment. I could make a month's pay with one article. He was also introduced to literary agent Paul Revere Reynolds, Jr., Reynolds agreed to take on Haley as a client. He sent Reynolds 200 pages of what he called advanced material for the book entitled Heading USA. It was his original attempt to treat life in his Tennessee hometown as representative of race relations in the South. Reynolds was not a fan. Alex was unfazed by the rejection. You're going to find that out a lot, too. Somebody tells him this is no good. Alex doesn't care. Sounds like it. With the combination of Alex's interview and the story about NOI and the times that focused heavily on Malcolm X, Haley decided that the idea of collaborating on a book with Malcolm. Malcolm was game, but told Haley that he would have to discuss it with the messenger. Muhammad simply said, quote, Allah approves. In a written agreement, Malcolm and Haley set clear ground rules for the content of the book. Malcolm promised to give Haley enough time to elicit material sufficient for a 100,000-word book. Nothing could appear in the book that Malcolm did not approve of, and anything Malcolm particularly wanted in would be included. When Malcolm signed the contract, he said to Haley, quote, A writer is what I want. 
not an interpreter. Later, Haley got Malcolm to give permission for him to write his own comments at the end of the book without Malcolm's review. Haley decided not to be listed as Malcolm's co-author because he thought that it would imply that he shared Malcolm's views. Quote, when mine are almost a complete antithesis of his. The book would be by Malcolm, as told to Alex Haley. They soon had an offer from Doubleday and Company Publishers with a $20,000 advance. Malcolm wanted his half made out to Muhammad Moss number two. Haley asked Reynolds for $500 of his advance before it even came in from Doubleday. Reynolds sent the money, but appended a note. Quote, I can't always promise to be able to advance money at any time. I will always tell authors that we're not bankers. This would be an ongoing problem. Haley promised to deliver the book by September 1st, 1963. Remember that date. September 1st, 1963 is when he promises to have it. Less than three months away. Because there was not as much complex composition as another book might take. Reynolds replied that there was no need to rush because Doubleday did not have time to publish the book in 1963. Soon after Haley started to show that he was one to want to jump to the next project before the current one was over, he wrote to Reynolds and told him that early 1964, he hoped to have his first four chapters of The Lord and Little David. Reynolds told him to slow down, focus on one thing at a time. Again, a problem that would occur more and more over time. Haley really won over Malcolm and got him to open up by charming his wife, Betty, by admiring and complimenting her baking. Quote, hey, this is delicious. How on earth did you make it? Betty became very fond of Alex, a friendship that would last for decades. But when the book got underway, it was slow going for a while. Malcolm would go to Haley's Greenwich Village apartment late at night, and their sessions would last for hours, but the two men still weren't sure of one another. Malcolm was on the edge and had the idea that maybe the FBI had bugged Haley's apartment. To loosen Malcolm up, Alex had George Sims sit in on the interviews because Sims seemed to relax Malcolm. Haley's son, Fella, sometimes sat in too, later saying he wanted to join the nation. Haley got material for the first two chapters of the autobiography of Malcolm X by interrupting a rant against blacks who condemned Elijah Muhammad and asking Malcolm about his mother. Malcolm talked until dawn, producing what many readers would call the most compelling parts of the book. The two men talked about Malcolm's time on the streets as a hustler. Malcolm became more introspective and self-critical. Quote, The only thing I consider wrong was what I got caught doing. I had a jungle mind, I lived in the jungle, and everything I did was done by instinct to survive. Haley accompanied Malcolm to college lectures, television appearances, and walks through Harlem over the next few months. The two men became friends. Malcolm gradually revealed to Haley his sensitive nature. In the course of talking about his life as a hustler, Malcolm leapt from his, co- from his chair in Haley's tiny apartment and demonstrated his prowess at the Lindy Hop, a popular dance in the 1940s, all the while scat singing and snapping his fingers. He laughed freely and scorned whites for not being able to do the same. He was touched when a Harlem couple named their baby after him. Walking around Harlem, Haley watched Malcolm avoid crowds at 125th Street and moving among people living literally on side streets. To a wino, he said, quote, It's just what the white devil wants you to do, brother. 
He wants you to get so drunk so he'll have an excuse to put a club upside your head. Haley thought Malcolm saw him as someone whom he could express himself with candor, and like any person who lived among tension, amid tension, he enjoyed being around someone, another man, with whom he could psychically relax. By June of 1963, Haley was smitten with Juliet Collins, an airline stewardess, and, like Nan, pretty, demure, and southern. He probably met Collins during his journalistic travels between 1960 and 1963. Reynolds gave a surprise engagement party for Alex and Julie. Haley sent Reynolds a gushing note of appreciation. Quote, Julie is so impressed with sudden entry into a world where she meets such important people. I likewise so much enjoy being your client. I truly do. And it's my full intent to make your investment of time and interest in my development as an author prove to be variously worthwhile. But Haley and Nan were still married. And when Haley passed his wife, pressed his wife for a divorce, she did not cooperate. The record is not clear as to when Haley and Julie married, though by early October, he was calling her his wife. Later, Nan and Fellas said there was no documents proving that Haley had obtained a divorce in Mexico, as he claimed. By early 1964, Julie was pregnant, and at some point, she and Haley were married legally. But all that fighting with Nan over a divorce and meeting a new lover put a damper on his productivity. By September 1963, Reynolds was getting worried because he hadn't received any new chapters from Haley for review. He made Haley aware of the issue, and Haley in turn sent him two chapters out of chronological order, the context of which worried Doubleday because Malcolm's anti-Semitic tone or saying that black leaders of the March of Washington took money from the white man, 1.5 million, he claimed, to prevent a radical turn in race relations, to counteract many of the things that would worry the publishers that Malcolm refused to let them omit from their text, Haley planned to append several essays of the autobiography in which he would interpret Malcolm's life from the point of view of a Christian, liberal black man. He would counter the Nation of Islam's anti-white positions, and then he would urge blacks towards Christianity, his answer to Malcolm X's message. Haley reported to his editors that Malcolm agreed to his appendices, quote, you write what I want to say, then you say whatever you want to. In Haley's mind, the autobiography of Malcolm X was also the story of Alex Haley. Several times in the fall of 1963, Haley asked both Reynolds and Doubleday for more advance money. He needed to fix his typewriter to get his telephone turned back on, to go to Arizona to interview Elijah Muhammad, and to move from Greenwich Village to the town of Rome in upstate New York. George Sims' parents lived in Rome, which led Haley to move there at the same time Sims did. Haley's financial need made him tempted by the offer of an advance for a book on Sojourner Truth, to which Reynolds objected. Quote, Signing contracts long before you can do the book is just a form of borrowing, and you're paying the equivalent of a terribly high interest because you're not getting the best kind of contracts. Now you talk to your good wife and see if you can't pull your horns and operate on this basis. That good advice went unheeded. And rentals and rentals sent more money anyway. So really, he's got himself to blame. Through 1963, Malcolm's fans had grown much to the chagrin of Muhammad and his inner circle. In December of that year, 
He would have the first speech by a representative of NOI since the Kennedy assassination. Muhammad told him not to criticize the slain president. Malcolm did exactly that. Suggesting to Muhammad and his inner circle that Malcolm was campaigning for the messenger's position. Malcolm was suspended from his position as minister. In early 1964, Malcolm had told Haley he was in danger of being killed. They all wondered what would happen if Malcolm died before the book could be published. In early February, Haley said he could have it done by March 31st. So again, here we are, already changing the date of when the book's going to be due. He was only about six chapters into an 18-chapter book. He was less than a third of the way through, so in March, he settled into a Manhattan hotel where he said he would stay until he was finished. And that is where we will pick up for part two of Alex Haley. <sighs> Suspense. Uh, so far, it's not controversial. Uh, no, so far, it's not. I mean, aside from the fact that you know, he's marrying, tried to marry someone when he's, he was already he's, yeah. he's a womanizer and uh, he, he likes to take contracts with other companies, even though he has no time to get around to writing their books or articles. And then he keeps asking for more money, even though they give him money and he just kind of blows through it. The, the, the contra- most of the controversy will come near the late middle part of next week's episode. Uh-huh. And that's where you'll go. Oh, well, fuck. <laughs> because when I was reading it, I was going, oh, well, fuck. Because I didn't know who to believe. Do I believe Alex Haley, who I've been going on this trip with? Or do I believe all these other people? And, uh, uh, you believe Alex for a while, and then, and then believe other people for a while, and it's, it's, I don't know how well I hit the controversy in here, but when you read the book, it's it's pretty prevalent. It's a good part of the end of, close to the end of the book. So I guess we'll find out next week. You'll find out next week. All right, well, let's get to the socials. Okay, we are on Twitter and the Gram at open a f-i-n-g book at audio parfait and i am at e-c-j-b-a-t i am at young e-t-a-m six on twitter young e-t-a-m on instagram you can get our goodreads account at goodreads.com slash audio parfait where you can see all the books that 70's been reading the very few books i have read uh what we are work, what we are reading for research books that we cover on weekday clip notes i know we kind of fallen back behind on putting the weekday clip note books on the Goodreads account, we will get to we will go through and make sure that all those get up there um, within the next couple of days. You can email us info at audioparfait.com. Tell us what you're thinking about Alex Haley. If uh, any authors you want us to cover, we will be covering our first listener submitted author within the next few weeks. Um, it's either going to be the series after this one or the series after the series after this one. It all depends on how much research I am able to get done that time. But you let us know if there's anybody you want us to cover and uh, they will get put right into the list as long as they, you know, are at least a little bit interesting. Um, go to the webpage info at audioparfait.com uh, That's the email. Go to the webpage audioparfait.com uh, You can get all the episodes of 
this podcast, all of our series on our authors. You can get every episode of Weekday Clip Notes. Serieses. Serieses. With support. Series. S- series. How many S's? Series. That's the plural. All the series. Series is the plural of series? Yes. What about moose? Moose. English is confusing. You can get all of the series, author series that we cover on this show, and you can get all the episodes of Weekday Cliff Notes. Uh, also, you can ca- catch some episodes of our other podcast. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt, where we cover everything we love and hate about the wrestling world today, if you're into that type of shit. Go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash audio parfait. We still have stickers. You sign up. For anything, I believe it's three dollars or more. You get a sticker, free sent to you. you just got to give us your everybody uh, loves stickers. Your information, and they're uh, they're the Spotify stickers. So all you got to do is pull up the search, hit the camera, scan it, boom, show comes right up, just like that. Right yeah, and you can fingertip. stick it to your bumper or your back window, and then stick other back of somebody's head. Just stick it wherever the fuck you want to stick them. Stick so, it on your ass. That's right. And we like to thank Old Red Sofa for sending us those. We really appreciate it. Please, wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. Uh, if you can, rate and review us, comment, follow us, whatever they have. And that really helps letting us know that you're listening and what we can do better. Be honest about it. Five stars, but give us, be honest about it and tell us, uh, tell us what you think. Go to your local library, local bookstore, help out libraries, help out the independent bookstores, help out uh, independent authors if you can, if you are in that type of situation. And I believe that. That is it. That is it for All today. Right. Well, like we say everyone, take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Between now and the time we can talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see. Bye, guys.